Hi, and welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boyler. Starting about a year ago, things started to go sideways for Democrats in the Biden era. And once it did, the onslaught of bad news never really let up. I think you can actually see the snowball start rolling in the very early days when President Biden and his majorities in Congress were doing a lot of stuff. His approval was steady for a while, but his disapproval started ticking up almost right away as Republicans launched a barrage of culture war attacks and Democrats were loath to answer them. Then there was the Afghanistan withdrawal, or in my view more accurately, the way the mainstream and right-wing media teamed up to cover the Afghanistan withdrawal. Then Build Back Better went bust. Then inflation and gas prices started ticking up. Then Russia invaded Ukraine, which made prices rise further. The Omicron variant and subvariants kept the pandemic burning. Right-wing judges foiled the administration's plans on a variety of fronts. And then, of course, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. But then more recently, something kind of weird happened. Actually, I, I don't think it's weird, but the break with the prior trajectory was sharp. And that is that Democrats have had a really great past month or so, thanks, I think, to three equally important categories of action. One, they broke out of their legislative inertia to pass a bunch of bills, most notably the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really just Build Back Better reduced to a few core elements. Two, they started making Republicans pay for the consequences of the Dobbs decision, culminating in a huge landslide victory for pro-choice Americans in Kansas. And three, the House January 6th committee helped make Donald Trump and the GOP more synonymous with violent insurrection, crime, lying, and they promise there's more to come in September. And you can see the consequences of all this piling up in the polls. Biden's numbers are still kind of in the toilet, but Democrats are now favored to keep the Senate, and they've overtaken Republicans in the generic ballot for control of the House. And I think it's worth asking if the saga of the past 18 months should make Democrats and the liberal establishment generally rethink what it is that causes political fortunes to turn. Is it mostly an empirical and material dynamic? That is like when real incomes go up, then the guys in charge win almost mechanically, but when real incomes go down, they lose. Is politics a science that can be mastered by asking people what matters most to them and then talking about the things they say matter most? Or is it more subjective and a more media-driven experience of events, a sense that Team One is on the march in some sense, or the bad guys are winning, the bad guys are losing, the more confident players seem to be on a real tear? I'm being a little reductive here, but that's the debate. And I think it's fair to say that the Democratic Party leadership, by which I mean Biden, but also the longstanding congressional leaders, their big diaspora of aides, advisors, and strategists who run their offices, the party committees, and campaigns, they overwhelmingly hew to the former theory of the case. At the same time, I think we can just use our senses and realize that politics isn't really a solved game. Events are unpredictable, and in a two-party system, they're also zero-sum. So winning partisan fights is almost by definition good for your party. Even just this week, we saw something really extraordinary happen. The FBI executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's estate in South Florida, reportedly looking for code word classified documents that Trump basically stole from the White House and has seemingly failed to return. 
Republicans, as they tend to do, responded in an unhinged fashion, ranging from promises to meddle in the many Trump criminal investigations to threats to abolish the FBI and even to foment civil war. This is how they roll, but it's based, I think, on their general inclination to maximize partisan attacks, create a sense of aberrance around whatever they're raging against, reasoning that they can't well acknowledge Trump is a horrible crook after genuflecting to him for six years. But Democrats handled the gift of a mature FBI investigation into their main political opponent, Donald Trump, the way they normally do. They went silent. And I don't just mean they declined to comment on an ongoing investigation, but they declined even to vilify the Republicans who were threatening to sabotage DOJ in order to place Trump above the law. I'm frustrated and fascinated by the question of why. Why not go for the jugular? Why not vie for narrative control over the galvanizing issues of the day? So I wanted to talk to someone who's seen the Democratic machine from the inside, knows how it works, but isn't a lifer and has even run against them in recent years. And the name that came to mind was Faz Shakir. Faz knows the party leadership very well. He worked for Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid at different points several years ago. But since then, he's run campaigns for ACLU and Bernie Sanders, and now runs More Perfect Union, which is a media outlet chronicling people-driven fights against powerful corporate and political entities. And at bottom, I hope he can help me understand, A, why is the party the way it is? And B, what can we and others do to change it to better fit this twilight struggle we're in for a freer, truer democracy? So Faz Shakir, welcome to Positively Dreadful. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. So does the portrait I just painted in that long windup uh, just now, does it resemble your experience working in the Democratic leadership in the last decade? The sort of sensibility that, that says you shouldn't go for the jugular without conducting a focus group first. Right, and that you need policy uh, competence. You need to execute practical, real-world compromises that can get the requisite votes they need. And in doing so, requires some degree of dissipation of enthusiasm, I would say, right? It requires a dissipation of friction, Mm -hmm. uh, that we minimize friction, we show we can compromise, and then we can get modest measures to improve incremental progress in America. Mm -hmm. And it is a valid theory of the case, right? If you happen to believe it. The question you have to ask is just, is it is it sufficient politically and policy-wise to address the crises that we face? And I, I would say policy-wise, the case is, you could argue both. That we're making progress that Democrats would then have to come back and say, this was phase one, here's phase two. You don't hear a lot of talk about that. Right. Brian, we should put a pin in that. Like, is, is there a phase two to this? And and that's, that's a critical question because that's what campaigns are running. Right. Which brings me to my second point, which is, Elections, right? When you campaign in elections, it's a different world than having a policy-minded governance approach. You have to kind of own that when you're engaged in elections and winning elections, you have to flip a switch and be in a different mindset. All right. Uh, yeah. Setting aside those questions about about what the long-term trajectory for policy is and what you're building towards, there's a question of like, is it working? Like, is this theory of the case resulting in Democrats? crushing it. (laughs) And I, you know, I don't think that they're doing as bad as you could imagine, right? Like they have won some elections, but about like half in the last 
decade. And, you know, that doesn't scream to me that they've hit upon some unquestionably superior way of uh, way of doing politics. Well, and it's come to some degree at, at, at the expense or I guess the, the benefit of a realignment of voters. And so some of that realignment that you're seeing is that uh, suburban uh, folks who are often some to some degree a little bit wealthier are moving towards Democrats. Um, you know, you take households above 100,000 people with a college degree, people with a PhD. Uh, in fact, if you look at polls and you look at college education, especially advanced education, and you mm-hmm. say, they ask them about Biden approval, it happens to be that, you know, that is the base of people who are most strongly supportive of, of Joe Biden. The question around the, the Democratic composition is, do we still have effective, persuasive arguments for people who are in the lower income thresholds, who are working class people, uh, who might be the Starbucks and Amazon workers of the fe- you know present and future? And I think to my mind, that is where the, the, the success politically of the Democratic coalition hinges. But because the fear, obviously, is they move towards Republicans, they put people like DeSantis in the White House, they obviously, you know, engage in faux populism and take us down terrible policy paths, and none of us want that. So I do think that that, to my mind, it's really that question that concerns me most and animates both the policy thinking and the political thinking that I, I am engaged in. So where do you think this theory of politics come from? Like, take me inside to the extent that you can, uh, to describe sort of how these conversations go. Is is there a history that drives it? Or who would Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer point to as their gurus on approaching things this way? Well, I, I don't know. The, I, I mean, the, there are certainly individuals, obviously, in many ways that the Democratic establishment is, is called an establishment because people generally <laughs> stick around and live in it for a long period of time and establish it, for better or for worse, for long periods of time. So the thinking is kind of built on prior experiences uh, and in, in some sense, like a clearer straight line of, well, this is the way we've done things in the past and this is the way we'll continue forevermore to do things. And I and I, I think that there's that there's valid validity to that, right? When you're an establishment, suggests that you've won some power, you've held some power, as Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer do. So that their argument around uh, essentially an incremental, practical, policy-minded approach that can deliver, you know, a kind of centrist or moderate member into the House or into the Senate is understandable. It has had some successes in the past. So the question you have to also reckon with, I think, is are are things changing in a way of, over with the Democratic coalition in the future elections that are ca- cause you in some ways to reevaluate that? And I think that that's what you know, for better or for worse, you know, like how Bernie Sanders, a progressive movement, have challenged this Democratic Party over, especially over the past five six years, is to think bolder in ambition and different in politically. And we can get into like how each of those are different, yeah. but. I think that, that that has had a positive effect in my mind on the Democratic Party. I think if you look at the, the kind of scale of ambition of the Joe Biden presidency versus the Barack Obama presidency, you do see kind of more, you know, you see focuses and kind of issues, health care, uh, climate and taxes being three of them, that the scale of ambition is more because I think of a progressive movement that's pushing for those, uh, you know, desires. However, we're always getting the kind of pull back into retrenchment? Can we go safer? Can we go with less friction? Can we go with less ambition? And that's the tender balance in some sense we're trying to strike within the Democratic Party. 
So I want to get to the to the progressive theory of, of the case in a minute because I actually don't think it's too terribly different from the, the leadership theory of the case. But before we do, where do you fall on this question of why the pendulum has swung back towards Democrats over these past four or five, six weeks? Well, and I think you have to sit and ask yourself, like, what are you measuring for and what are you kind of uh, like uh, if you're measuring for policy outcomes? Brian, I think you're right, right? Like, you, yes, there's there's undoubtedly bills being passed uh, in Kansas, votes being registered on preserving abortion rights. And those are all good and positive things. The question I think that often some of us are trying to measure is, will this uh, translate into electoral successes in 2022? And if you're kind of starting from that question, I, I you know, have reasons to worry. And the main reasons to worry are that we cannot simply campaign on we did stuff, right? That That's a backwards looking uh, approach. That is to say, we you, we came, we saw, we conquered, and we're done here. And elections are about choices. You, you have to have a future forward choice. What is A versus B? And what is the agenda that you would like to put up before me so that you'd like to hold office. And so in that case, you're building on the credibility that, hey, we've done these things. And when I come to you and say, we can do even more, you will believe me because look, we did these things in the past. And that should be the case. But you don't, uh, right now, at least as, as we pass the inflation, so-called inflation reduction act, we're not, are we talking about what phase two will be? Open question. Wait, are we are we saying like here's the next phase on prescription drug cost reduction, or here's the next phase on uh, making the wealthy pay their fair share? Those things should still be on the table. We should be campaigning on them pretty aggressively, and that is, I think, the role of a progressive movement that's trying to do that. Right. I mean, I, I do think that you know, if Dem- if Democrats' campaign message were we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, it's going to be good for your pocketbooks if you're a senior on Medicare, if you uh, use the ACA to get your health insurance. It's going to be good for the planet. It's going to be good for your energy costs. It's going to tax the rich. End of story. They're going to say, okay, well, what, what, what are you going to do if you get reelected? And that's a, that's a blank that Democrats need to fill in. And I think that they can fill it in with everything from codifying Roe to finishing what they weren't able to get done because of Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema. And that's a, that's a pretty clean pitch. But it's still like just a, a pure policy pitch at a time when, you know, is the election really going to be about the policy status quo per se, or is it going to be about these sort of more abstract or more like tribal issues about like, about, you know, where people are being pulled based on, you know, what information they're, they're hearing from wherever they happen to get their, their news well, what we're talking about is the fact that the Democratic Party is a coalition and you kind of have to have a lot of arguments to build that coalition. You have to have young people engaged. You have to have women engaged. You have to have people of color engaged. You have to have you know, a lot of arguments. But from my mind, there's also a large macro one that appeals to a lot of persuasive, the people who may, are, are, are on the on the fence, essentially, about Democrats, either about turning out or which side they're going to vote for. And and. To my mind, the number one topic with those people is the economy. And if you look at where Biden is in his, you know, standing on of his presidency, it tracks almost entirely with people's feelings on the economy. And so now I, I think the real danger is that you talk about, well, we passed all these things to help improve the economy. 
so-called Inflation Reduction Act, and all, you know, all these other measures. And if you are doing fine, if you're somebody lives in the suburbs and your income is, you know, six figures plus and you're, you're doing OK, it, it, you're going to have a tendency to say, my team, the Democrats, we did it. We did good things. We reduced prescription drug costs. But if you're a person living on the edge and you actually really need that support of a prescription, drug, your, your life won't be changing in terms of prescription drug costs anytime in the near future. Some of the provisions that we talked about are going to, you know, in the Inflation Reduction Act, that's going to take place you know, four or five years from now. Uh-huh. So I think what we're, what we're, what you got to keep in mind, at least, is that there's still arguments to make and we cannot it, to talk to the working class people and we cannot talk in such a way that makes them feel more distant from us. We can't tell them, hey, we did it for you. And, and, and that's why we deserve office again when their lives materially may not have changed. So you have to think about, well, what are the arguments that we're going to go to those people in particular, people living on the edge, working class people that, you validates voting Democrat. I guess what I what I mean is just in the most narrow sense, where you imagine that fluctuations in polls are mostly driven by proximate events, right? That you had eighteen ish months where, or you know, fourteen months after the uh, American Rescue Plan passed through this past several weeks or so, where Democrats weren't doing much legislating and they were falling back on the the fact that they have passed several bipartisan bills um they maintain they tried to maintain a relentless focus on these kitchen table issues and delivering singles and doubles for the american people and what i've seen in the last 4 5 6 weeks is that democrats went in a different direction sort of by necessity in passing the Inflation Reduction Act on a par- on a partisan basis in mounting these January 6th hearings, which were also, you know, Liz Cheney notwithstanding, a very partisan, you know, anti-Trump versus Trump affair. And they've tried to make Republicans pay a price for the Dobbs decision with votes in Congress and messaging about, you know, how they'll fix things if they're, if they're given another lease on their majority. And to me, I mean, that's like your perfect experiment right there, that the, the better politics are the ones where you're on the march and you're taking on your opponents and you're beating them and not one where you're sort of trying to, to be the agents of consensus and then appealing to voters in this sort of bank shot sense where it's like, well, however you're feeling about things, we're clearly like the more high road uh, consensus oriented party. And... You know, I I sympathize with the with the people in the party who want to try to do this all in a more empirical way and just say, look, like in, uh, infrastructure polls really well, and we did infrastructure, and we should just follow the polls where where wherever they'll lead us. When you don't use data at all for like the, you're using much less reliable information to guide your decisions, but the things that Democrats have done in the last six weeks have worked seemingly in a way that the, the stuff they were doing before didn't. And I, I feel like the, the, the people who, who like the hive mind of the Democratic leadership has sort of turned their way of doing things into an ideology where when, where, you know, there's a paradigm shift and politics looks different and Democrats do things on, in a more partisan way and it redounds to their benefit 
they try to do this sort of curve fitting where they say, oh, maybe, you know, gas prices went down and that's why everything turned around. And I just don't think it's credible, but I don't totally understand why uh, looking at how much better things feel just on a morale basis when you're fighting and winning, why they're just not willing to, to run with that, if that makes sense. I mean, I think they are trying to build a culture and a feel of winning, right? You see that pretty aggressively now. Everyone's saying, hey, we've done some really positive and great things. And I think among traditional Democrats, it should translate into stronger, hopefully, support of the of the party that you know, a lot of the issues that you're talking, the salience of January 6th, the salience of uh, an abortion rights fight, uh, the salience of you know, a competent, a competent governance that, that can do things for people. Those are going to turn out, I think, uh, core Biden voters. And that's a good thing. And uh, you'll stick with the status quo. But what I'm suggesting, Brian, is it isn't sufficient. Uh, and as you think about some of the coalition that, you know, Biden and Democrats won with in 2020, it's going to be a lot of young people. It's going to be people who are independents, uh, people who are working class people who moved away from Trump. I think there, th- that, to my mind, it, 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 there's a question of enthusiasm of, of people, right? the question of enthusiasm. Are you exciting? And, and what we saw in the gubernatorial elections in New Jersey and Virginia undoubtedly was a case that the Republican side was just much more enthusiastic. And even since then, right now, the, the base of the Republican Party is pretty enthusiastic to, you know, beat up on Joe Biden and take him down. Yeah. And I think, like, the arguments of competence and the arguments of January 6th, a lot of them appeal to core Democrats. I'm asking for also to, to find ways to appeal beyond core Democrats, to, to think about literally the macro issue in the room. If you and I, I went into any room in any state in this country and it was a random selection of people, the number one topic on their mind would be the economy. And what are you doing about it? What's the situation of inflation? So you can hope and believe that, hey, if gas prices go down a little bit, if inflation goes down a little bit, you know that, that's going to be helpful to the cause. But what it's still not doing politically is giving a narrative to people about why did this happen to you? What did we do to address it? And what should you? Why should you put us back into office to do something to fix it? And, and and I'm like, this is the issue in the room. And we talk about a lot of the other ones that will have core appeal to Democratic voters, and that's good. But this major one, I would argue to you, Brian. You know, on inflation and slash the economy. I if I had to ask you, Brian, hey, what's the Democratic argument on why inflation happened and what they're going to do about it in the next? four years. What would you say? Putin's price hike. <laughs> I follow this stuff really closely though. Well, but you would say that that's why it, you would say gas prices went up that way. So if you went to the grocery store and you were dealing with higher meat prices or whatever, and like everything costs a little bit more, things feel broken. I mean, is, is it Putin, right? It's not just Putin. So, I mean, once upon a time, I'm lucky that I've never experienced real economic precariousness where like, if I didn't get a paycheck, I was going to be homeless or whatever. You know, I, I might not have been able to make my rent in DC when I first moved here as a 22 year old, but if I had failed in the early stages of my, uh, career, I still had parents at home and they wouldn't have let me starve. Right. But so I, I remember being price sensitive, um, because I was on my own trying to not fail. And I remember the prices of things going up and what, 
I thought to do was when something that I wanted to eat got more expensive is I would buy something cheaper, like pork instead of chicken or whatever. The next question, okay, who's to blame for the prices going up? Is it the president? I mean, that's to me like a highly mediated question. And so obviously Democrats should have a, you know some explanation for why it's not just simply their fault right. because Republicans are going to say it's Biden's fault. But this is important. Can I, can I, I hate to get weedy about sure. it, but this is a really important question because that, now we have to get into what, what do some people who are on the fence think about the Democrats and the economy, stewardship of the economy? And this is the concern is that we did progressive economics for the first six months of this presidency. We put mm-hmm. stimulus out with child tax credits, unemployment, expansion of unemployment. Remember all this? And the argument from others is going to be that progressive economic period is what caused inflation, i.e. government helping working people is what caused inflation. And if you're the administration, you kind of, Democrats in general, you have to at some level defend what you did and why it worked and then what happened as a result of it. And, and at least in my, let me fill out the thread for folks. What happened is obviously I looked at Brian Boitler. I said, hey, you have a little more cash in your pocket. And I'm a large corporate CEO. And I say, hey, the prices of everything is going up because I have incredible control over this market. Uh, I'm going to keep wages down keep, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to charge more for this stuff. I'm going to show record profits. I'm going to put more stock buyback, buybacks and dividends out there. And no one can stop me. No one's going to do anything about it. And then the question goes back to stewardship of the economy. What, you, what do you, Democrats, have to say about an environment in which you know, corporate greed is occurring, corporate power is amassing, they are stomping on workers, they are you know, stifling wages, they are keeping more for themselves, they've done that during the pandemic. Is there an argument? Is there a plan? Is there something that you want to do in the next two to four years to address that issue? I agree with you, Brian, they're not going to blame Democrats for the wheat price going up. What they've historically looked to Democrats to do is to be a bulwark against corporate power. That's FDR and and the lineage of Democrats since. And I think that that, that to my mind, especially on an economic question, is the one that is is kind of missing. Let me concede a couple things. One, that I think that it would be better for Democrats to, or, you know, it's good when they do sort of uh, point the finger at corporations when inflation is high. Like whatever economists say about the merits of the argument that's smart. I think it's also smart for them to talk about overseeing the, the presiding over the fastest re- economic recovery in history, record low unemployment, wages up. All those things matter. More broadly, I think that just being good stewards of the economy, being competent at governing are important just sort of as table stakes insofar as, right, like, like if, you, if you preside over catastrophe of an economic collapse – or Hurricane Katrina, or the Iraq War, or the global financial crisis, you're you're going to fail, right? You can't amass a record of failure and then hope that nobody notices because if the failure is severe enough, people will, no matter how good your propaganda is. Um, what I don't necessarily think is true is that if you walk into any room in the country, yes, people will say, like, the issue that matters to me the most is the economy, but I mean, when they go home, what, what what are they doing? Are they like sitting at the kitchen table, like pouring over their bills? Or do they go onto Facebook and like look at, you know, memes about, you know, critical race theory or uh, whatever else and like get really angry about it and then uh, and then make voting decisions on the basis, not just of their material concerns, but um, but about, you know, whatever 
they are passionate about or, or, or whatever like hook somebody has found into their lizard brain to make them mad or make them fearful. Like these, these sort of potent emotions that aren't really addressable with a policy response. But that's what we're arguing about politics, right? So a policy, you got to govern the economy. You got to do the things that you can do and pass bills that you can accomplish. But then whereas we get into the politics mode, the, the, you have to identify friction and bites and you have to identify who are your foils and you should uh, really, it's fine to make people mad for your cause. And what the things that I was just saying around inflation is that you should be mad at corporations. You should be upset and you should have an agenda and a plan, at least for the campaign to say, we're going to take these bastards on for you, for your, on your behalf. And those mm-hmm. translate into the means that you're talking about, right? Those translate into the facts that get you excited, and motivated. But what you've seen, or at least in the two years of the theory of governance is to dissipate some of the passion, to dissipate the friction. Like and and cut some deals in which you know there will be some you know corporate benefit to semi uh, semiconductor chips companies. There will be some benefit to you know this uh, solar wind uh, companies and uh, you know to healthcare companies for ACA subsidies, et cetera. That there, in some sense, it's a striking a compromise, it's dissipation of the of a friction. And I do think, yeah. as you think about it from politically, you have to have a friction. And yes, it's the Republicans and the Republican agenda, but that isn't going to be sufficient enough if you're the ones holding power, right? In some sense, if you're holding power, you can't just say, okay, well, the Republicans have terrible ideas. Yes, of course they do. But also, here's what we want to do to keep and maintain power in the agenda that we want to put forward for the next two quarters. You've seen that old Onion cartoon um, sort of asks, which message will resonate better? And it pits Jimmy Carter saying, let's talk better mileage against Ronald Reagan saying kill the bastards <laughs> right i mean i like i we don't have to belabor what the point of the cartoon is like it's obvious right. obviously improving fuel economy saves people money but there's no poll that you can conduct that will tell you one way or another uh whether that's a better thing for candidates to dwell on than will save you from evil forces in the world or the haters and the losers uh the people who are who are you know keeping you down, the man. And that's a message that works in an economic context, but I think it works in just about every context if you're willing to use it, right? Like in culture war context, just as much as in policy ones, right? So Nancy Pelosi recently said the following. She said, our country is at risk, our democracy is at risk, but what we are campaigning on are the kitchen table issues that affect America's working families. And I think what I'm trying to understand is how talking about household budgets in any economic environment is more galvanizing or potent than appealing to people's sense of patriotism and, and self-preservation. Like, why would Nancy Pelosi not say something more like, our country is at risk, our democracy is at risk, and, and we are not going to let them fall? You can, like, we will obviously always have your economic interests at heart, but we have to win this fight too. To, but to her credit, I, I work for her, so I will def- I'll de- defend this part of her, is that she's doing it through action, right? And, and the action that she's doing is leading a January 6th you know, commission that is showing to the world some degree of what the democracy risk is. And I, th- I think like what she understands, and I, I agree with, is that at some level, the people who, who know that democracy is at risk have already a perspective. And and they and they are going to take a stance based on what they know and understand about Trump and the Republican Party. But for people who for whom 
the, the kind of democracy is at risk argument is not the most salient or they have kind of like not registered this as the biggest thing. Um, I don't think just banging on the drum of saying it is going to do it for you. You got to find some arguments that appeal to them in a different way. Uh, and I think it is right to say this, this is where I'm saying it is the, is the economy has to have a, a core part of that. You, I think there's a lot of people just made judgments. If you're in the right, on the right wing side, for this a number of times, you might have Brian. Oh, the democracy is not at risk. Everybody wants to just fight and maintain power. That's in their, in their minds. It's like the Democrats' right rules and voting rights to preserve power for themselves. And we fight and preserve power. And all we learned from Donald Trump is that he just wants to, you know, he knew that Biden would tank this economy and he wanted to make sure that he was saving America, right? That, that would be the mythology you'd have to believe if you felt. Like the economy and and the country are just on the wrong track. We just need to just rescue this away. So I will justify this claims around democracy in order to fix this other major thing that I'm very worried about, which is the economy. So I I, I think you got to have you know both in some sense, but I don't think that the democracy thing is going to get you. I don't know that I agree with this because Donald Trump has spent the last you know since he lost the election talking about how it was stolen from him and remaking the entire Republican Party around uh, revenge and justice for the greatest crime of the century or whatever. This is, you know, really visceral, obviously completely false, dangerous rhetoric um, without any apparent economic policy agenda except to just like point at gas prices or whatever and say, ha-ha, Joe Biden did this. But that's sufficient, right? We did that in the flip end, right? When George W. Bush is president, we essentially do the same thing. You say, listen, this guy is tanking this thing and let's go in the opposite direction here. It's easier in the opposition. And I mean, like, obviously, we'll see how it works out when when the election uh, comes around. Uh, But he managed to give, like, put Republicans into poll position on the question of which party is better on democracy. And it's not because they have the truth on their side or a winning argument on their side. They just got basically the entire Republican Party to buy into this lie and then prioritize it as an important issue to them. Whereas the I think the anti-insurrection supermajority of the country is a little bit lost about the significance of what happened on January 6th because the um, you know, the way the incoming Democratic majority dealt with it was a little bit um, seesawing between, okay, like we'll we'll do some January 6th accountability thing, but then we'll do some infrastructure stuff. And then we'll seven months later impanel this uh, committee, but it'll work in the dark for six months. And then we'll flop around <laughs> trying to pass yeah, the bill back. Let's but- get concrete about it, Brian. So like in my mind, when you say democracy, you're saying which of you candidates believes that the election was stolen and, and and believes that there were, you know, Donald Trump should have rightly won this election or don't, right? Like, was, was did Biden legitimately win? Or, and that question, I, I, I think it will be a major one, particularly in the Trump-endorsed elections, uh, in which there's a general election candidate that he picked, essentially. And there, I have a little doubt that those issues are going to come up and that their candidates are going to have to be asked about them in the new present. Uh, because Trump obviously isn't on the ballot, but his his endorsed candidates will be. What is is your concern that that question won't be asked? That that people no, I think. Well, I mean, I think many of many of them will just not debate. Um, and so the opportunity to to expose them 
just doesn't exist. Like they might get pressed on it. They might uh, not debate, camp- but but you are you also worried that people that there won't be discourse around their position on the big lie? Um, you know, I, I think it really sort of depends. It, it gets to the question of what an election is about, right? Every cycle, the the parties sort of do this battle for control over what the people who like media gatekeepers essentially cover as important. And so in 2016, even though it it, it was in some sense a, a referendum on Obama's two terms and, you know, Donald Trump being this aberrant, out of nowhere celebrity nominee for the Republican Party, it became about emails. And that was a media failure, but Republicans fed that. I mean, uh, it was one of the least substantive uh themes of any election that I can think of. But if you go back to the election before that, you know, Democrats did the normal thing, like talking about the health care bill that was going to make pre-existing conditions something that you can't be discriminated against for. And then Republicans were like, Muslims coming across the border with Ebola in the last three weeks of the of the campaign and the generic ballot just completely bifurcated and they and they won in a landslide. So I think it's incumbent upon the people contesting these elections to inject themes that grab voters in the gut as much as in the pocketbook. And, you know, if Democrats don't actually want to talk about the fact that Republicans uh, supported the ransacking of the Capitol, the killing of cops in order to steal an election, and now they're asking to be put back in power again, and they want to talk instead about the Inflation Reduction Act, then the you know, their appeal to voters is going to be about the economy, which maybe they'll people will be happy with, or maybe they won't. And the Republicans are going to be like, let's hang the establishment, the uh, the regime, which is what they're calling it now. Uh, let's kick them all out. Um, let's get revenge for the crime of the century. And, you know, that's going to fire up the angry right-wing half of the country and the majority is going to deal with what you were talking about, the the sort of dissipation of enthusiasm because they aren't being um, reached in the sort of most galvanizing parts of their consciousness. Listen, I, I you know, it, we'll see how this all plays out over the next three months. I live with less fear that uh, Democrats like Mandela Barnes and John Fetterman, at least at the Senate level, and, 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 and House candidates all over this country are going to take advantage of saying that uh, I am dealing with Republicans who can't even acknowledge basic truths and facts about our democracy. I believe they will say those. I, they will each campaign in interesting and different ways around that issue. I don't live with fear that they aren't going to mention those things. Uh, not going. We'll see, right? I mean, you may be yeah. making a point that I'm like, hey, whoa, like I can't believe that so and so was running against a Trump elect, a Trump appointed, you know, Republican and didn't mention the big lie. I don't know that I fear that as much. I don't know that I even fear that abortion rights will be neglected. That I think a lot of Democrats understand the stakes of this. They see it in Kansas. They they know they're going to talk about this. What I fear, Brian, is that the issues that you've just raised, oh, democracy and uh, uh, abortion rights, and you know, fighting for um, uh, you know, gen- uh, making sure we understand January 6th commission are all ways to neglect <laughs> the n- uh, issues that are actually the things that are 
are, are dragging Democrats down. Say, hey, instead of talking about this thing that is the number one issue that all the polls tell us everyone's talking about, let's not. In fact, let's drive everyone towards talking about the dem- democracy. And you're like, right, but we can do both and we have to do both. And I, if you take the current trajectory of things, I think we're more likely to be just be talking about democracy and neglecting anything about the economy. So I... I actually think things look sunnier now. I mean, not just because it feels good to watch the party be more confrontational and rack up wins, but it's just in the polls. They're doing better. Um, And hopefully that persists. Um, And, you know, I I think it's important for them to to discredit the opposition, which is really what I mean when I say the democracy stuff is just like remind people that these are criminals and other people who are trying to help criminals cover up their crimes, tried to steal an election. That's about why Republicans shouldn't win. And then separately, Democrats should win, A, because we delivered the stuff in the Inflation Reduction Act and the lowest unemployment in history. And when we get two more senators, if we have the House, we'll do, we'll codify Roe and we'll, you know, we'll be able to build on our our success uh, in the way we weren't when we only had 50 votes. Like, I think that that combined message is good. And it's the one that the party is. I would think that that is largely happening. It will yes. continue to happen for the next three months. I agree that we're converging on a place that's good for, for the moment. You know, we're also watching this sort of extraordinary thing that I mentioned in the windup about Donald Trump getting raided, you know, Mar-a-Lago getting raided. And the immediate Republican response was to just go, you know, go on the offense. Like, this is a Democratic plot. They've They've politicized the FBI. The FBI is... Uh, out for revenge against Trump. We're going to defund the FBI. We're going to um, we're, we're going to uh, nullify the FBI and not let them operate in our state. Right? Um, this is war. Okay. Democrats' initial inclination, and I think this is defensible, was to say we don't know what this investigation is about because it's a it's a secret matter. So we we don't we can't comment on the substance of the search warrant or what they were after. But if if Republicans think that they're going to put Trump above the law by defunding the FBI, then we're going to have a vote on that. And not just on defunding the FBI, but then a separate vote on making sure that these investigations have the resources they need to uh, succeed and to um, and to protect them from political interference from the right, whether Republicans win or not. And instead, what they've done is said like nothing. And so the airwaves and the headlines are just filled with Republicans rally to Trump. Uh, Joe Biden says he wasn't informed about the raid. Like they inverted it and turned it almost into a problem for Democrats that Trump is this criminal because they don't want to say, yeah, Trump's a crook. I'm not surprised he like the FBI had to raid his house. We'll see what the investigation uncovers. But but what the Republicans are talking about doing is corrupt and thuggish and we're not going to stand for it. Like that's a I think that that's like a low cost thing that that Democrats could have said. And it would be nice to not have to worry when something like this happens, that the leadership is going to wait three or four days to see how the polls shake out before they take what seems like an obvious moral and politically wise stance that is is undermines Republicans as they're attempting to cause harm and and, ma- and makes the story something that people realize that like the Republicans are on the wrong side of. If, if I were sitting with Pelosi or Harry Reid or Schumer and the reason you don't wait in is because immediately it feels like this was done as a, politi- a partisan 
uh, witch hunt against Donald Trump, but affirms you know, an argument that this wasn't done for any valid substantive reasons of any documents or anything. This was just done as a political attack on him. And so you're trying to measure that. You're trying to give the serious considerations of like, hey, if we really kind of defend and believe that this was done on the merits, that you know, if you have political leaders like the president jumping in and saying, hey, this is absolutely right. This guy's a crook. We're going after him in every which way. It is going to make it um, a, a kind of polarized one in which you're right that we, our base will probably be more fired. Anytime Trump's in the news, in my view, it's good for Democrats because nothing fires up Democrats more than Donald Trump. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking in general, if Donald Trump's in the news because he's getting raided by the FBI or, or whatever he might be saying on the stump or whatever crazy thing he might be doing next is lunacy. It is generally just a benefit. So my biggest fear of the 2022 was that he would evaporate into the background and not be around in his Twitter presences and felt or heard. But in fact, I think he's going to make himself heard. I'm like, great, that's good for business. Go ahead, because, you know, Democrats will get fired up about it. And I think Republicans, actually, there is some degree of, of like, you know, frustration in their ranks that, what the, geez, the freaking president, would he just like, would foreign president, would he just shut up sometimes or not be in the news? And I, you can feel that on the right. So I'm like, I think that generally that's okay. I'm not as concerned again about, as you are about like, where's the fire and the brimstone at Donald Trump? I don't fear that like our side is lacking for it at the senior ranks. I think that what I'm fearing is like, we got to have arguments beyond the core fire and brimstones for each of these bases that are persuading and moving people to vote with us. And if you, the more you're retrenching back into the things that like are 2020 to 2020-ish or like in the rear view mirror of reaffirmations of the character qualities of Donald Trump and those kinds of arguments, I, I don't think you're doing a, your job of persuading people about your uh, time in office, what you did, why you did it and why you want to hold it and what you want to accomplish in the next two to four years. That's fundamentally what an election is about. Let's talk about the big vision stuff, because I mean, I, I do want to say that I agree it would be stupid of, uh, of Pelosi and Schumer, or at least questionable for them to say, you know, I hope they get the bastard right uh, after he gets his after Mar-a-Lago gets raided. Because then, yeah, well, it suggests that the FBI did the right thing because you're suggesting you might. Oh, did you know that? Why? What do you know that I don't know? And now like, you're like, I don't know. <laughs> you're like, Hopefully that, no. I don't know as much as you and I know. Right? <laughs> what, I. I so yes, you say that about the investigation, but then Republicans say we're gonna we're gonna nuke the FBI because they they had the temerity to uh, execute a search warrant that a judge then signed you're off home. on. Go for it, Mister. Like like defend the blue all the time. Great, is that is, like that's the party of defend the blue. And now like hey, so it's the police officers go like right right. Go for it. Make your whatever arguments you want. It would be great if 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 Democrats were like saying that, but they're not. They're just like not saying anything. And it's it's this instinct. It's the same instinct. Right. There's a reason you give a little bit of time so it doesn't become hyper politicized immediately in the partisan right. But I do think the arguments that you're ta- you and I are talking about will, I think, come to this. Okay. So I, I framed this conversation mostly um, as a tick of Democratic leaders um, and and centrists and, and frontline members in the party. And obviously, I think uh, stress testing their theory of politics is important because they sort of run the show. Um, but I, I also think a, a similar sensibility uh, is prominent on the left, uh, just with sort of different ideas about how policy shapes political coalition, shapes outcomes, et cetera, right? Like on the one hand, you have neolib shills, and they contend that competent management, um, along with popular, well-polling, but incremental new reforms, are how you capture the political center. And if you capture the political center, Republicans can't win. That's that's their theory. 
On the other hand, you have Bernie bros, and they imagine transformational redistributive policies will generate working class solidarity and through that, an unbeatable rainbow coalition. And these are obviously different hypotheses, and that's why the last two election cycles have pitted uh, uh, Bernie against an establishment candidate. But I think they stem fundamentally from the same idea, which is that policy is the main driver of political outcomes. And I'm curious whether you believe that. Yeah, I don't. I don't. For election outcomes, policy is not necessarily determinative, especially in governance and how you did, how you performed. You've got to animate for people. What is a fight? What is a friction? What are the change? What are the differences in values? And so to, I, I would argue that Bernie was a very values driven candidate. Yes, we talk about the Medicare for all platform, but really it's a vision of a society in right. which, you know, take care. That's that's the most animating thing. One in which, you know, billionaires are really the foils. Like here's people who are who have it all. And and, and I think that to some of you was the compelling part of you know, expanding out the Democratic coalition with other people who aren't already in it is to say, here's a vision of where we're trying to go, what we're trying to fight for that often isn't seen in, a tr- in an establishment you know, narrative. It's like, what is the value that you're it's besides competent governance and getting the thing done that is has 50 plus votes? Is there like a easier are you pointing me towards like a, a kind of a society that you'd like to see. And I, I do think that it happens to be the progressive movement, rightly, like it's pushing this Democratic Party to say, no, we have to have some kind of values-oriented society that makes it clear, at least paints a picture for people of the kind that we want. And I think this is sometimes where we get into conflicts, and even in the progressive side about is that painting of the picture on economic conditions, or is it even broader? And it now includes like, you know, uh, police questions, immigration questions that sometimes aren't as, as politically popular. Right, I mean, I've I've really always thought that uh, Sanders's appeal, like the reason why he, he did surprisingly well in 2016, was less about any specific aspect of his platform than about his sort of fearless advocacy for those ideas, right? Like if, if in 2020, he had said, you know what, Medicare for all, it's a great idea, but let's not be unrealistic and we'll do a public option and call it a day and, and live to fight another day after that. I think it would have been ruinous to his campaign, but I, I think then you have to ask the question, why, right? Is it because his supporters are dogmatically committed to Medicare for all, or would it be because it would have undermined his whole brand, right? That he, that he fights for what he believes in, even when it's politically tricky to advocate for major changes that, uh, that, uh, make people fearful about what will replace what they have. But also, you know, the progressive, you know, I say this with all respect to the, the coalition of built is it's, it's a movement. And when you talk about a movement, a policy oriented movement, it is, it is by its definition, trying to change the Overton window in the realm of what policymaking is possible. So sometimes what, the, what, what people in a movement will get frustrated about is that the leaders of them Oh, essentially pre-compromise. And before we even started to engage in legislating, you're walking back from the mm-hmm. thing that you were trying to fight for. No, your job is to plant the, the kind of flag boldly in the sand. Then if to the extent where we're constrained by that, it is because Joe Manchin or somebody else came along and said, you can't do right. Make them have to own their stance and vote 
on the thing that we believe on rather than just, okay, if I, before we even get to the table, before we even talk, uh, I'm moving off of this because I think it's politically impractical, right? Like that, that I think is what a movement will get frustrated about because the movement is built around a vision of a society and a value that you're fighting for. And that, that, that's why that policy stance matters. Yeah, I, I see progressives, assuming we are in a sort of post-Bernie for president era, I see them warming to politicians like J.B. Pritzker and John Fetterman. And I honestly am not certain what either of those men would uh, like to enact on health care, for instance, if they were ever to become president. But I think that people watch them address what's happening in the world uh, on a sort of moment-by-moment basis. And they, they're drawn to them, like Bernie, because they seem to have fight in them. Yes. Um, and, and that's the sort of visceral core of it much more than the question of like, what does your white paper say? And is it true Medicare for all? I agree. I mean, even in the Biden era, what do you make of the Democratic coalition? I do think that becomes one of the divides. It's a healthy divide. It's not, you know, like Biden's basic argument is that we're going to reduce the temperature, tone everything down, return to normal, you know, be kind of a more genteel, peaceful. He's a peacemaker by his nature. And these are all good things about our president, but also means that he, doesn't really like to revel in, in a friction. And I think we do find that in those moments, and for particularly for political causes, it's important to have a friction because the friction helps animate for people what you're fighting for and what you're fighting against. It tells you that you care about something, right? That, oh, I really care. And if it pisses me off or like, I really want to do this, it shows the emotion of the battle more than the cerebral kind of ability to govern. And I think that that element of friction and fight and, and, and foils is, is, has been lost a bit. And, and you're right to say that it is often progressives being the ones to kind of put it back and, and, and make sure that we haven't lost, that there is, a, there is a fight going on here. We're reaching a synthesis because I think whether it's policy or whether it's Trump accountability, it's really hard to select for Democrats who are politically cautious, but will also uh, be fearless accountability fighters or fearless democracy reform fighters, right? Like they're going to be cautious across the whole spectrum of issues. So yes, maybe it's a, a political risk to nominate people who support Medicare for all or whatever, but that can't, that candidate. And if, if they get elected, that office holder is going to be a better tribune across the board for the, the Democrats economic agenda for holding Republicans accountable for, for retrofitting the democracy. And I think Biden believes his, in the importance of toning down the temperature. And I think he maybe really thought that he could accomplish it just by kind of being uh, a quiet figure. Um, I think to some degree has to his credit, right? Like, I mean, he's gotten some bipartisan bills done that most people would have assumed, you know, is that really going to happen? And, but I do think that like, that, that that there is a cost to reducing that temperature. There's a reason I think that Trump builds a base and animates it around friction all the time that we can't, you know, if you're building a, one that kind of connects viscerally with people, you're building a movement that connects viscerally with people, you got to give them a sense of what a fight is about. And I, I, I think that like, you know, I, I sense that there, this is a major divide and continue to be continue to be a divide and the democratic brand, I, you've used this word a number of times, I think has to be about this word accountability. It, it mm-hmm. matters so much that when the wealthy rip off the economy, when they, you know, you know, screw us on baby formula, when they like, um, you know, have opioid crisis, rampage our nation, we, the Democratic Party, 
actually believe in accountability and there's going to be some repercussions. But what some, I think some people, particularly those we lose from our coalition, feel like, oh, you believe in it. You say you believe in accountability. But when we put you in the office, it feels like you're just striking compromises with all these people. You're just trying to like make them feel good. And I think for the people who are trying to win back, people, I'm talking about people who've left, right? People who are kind of on the edge. I'm not sure about the Democratic Party. Oh, I'm not sure I have to vote. To me, that that's one of the areas that is most persuasive to come back to them and say, this Democratic Party is muscular and it will hold people to account. And if we can convince them around the credibility of that, I do think we we get some something cooking. You know, if you look at look at Biden's record and the bipartisan bills he's signed, you can make a case that he got the temperature down in Washington enough to pass some legislation, more bipartisan legislation probably than Obama passed. But I don't I don't really remember. It was a weird time back then. The other question though is like, is there more social strife in this country now than there was before he took office? I'd say yes, and it's not. I don't think it's his fault, right? But I think it's like unanswered um, right. incitement from from Donald Trump and and the, and the far right. Um, and I think that you know, in on the Hill, Democratic leaders are they, they think the Biden appeal on toning down the temperature is good because it's it's consistent with their own politics. And I think they also think that it's the best way to help their frontline members who are going to be trying to win reelection in districts in states that Donald Trump still has a lot of supporters in. I think that there's another theory of the case, which is that if you, if, if instead of being uh, obsessed with turning the temperature down, you're obsessed with accountability and, uh, and sort of branding or tattooing bad actors like Trump with their sins, with their crimes, you, you drag his popularity down one, two, three, 4%. And suddenly these races are just more winnable because the leader of the Republican Party is polling a little bit worse. Like if, if Trump had, had been 1% less popular in November 2020 or 2% less popular in November 2020, Biden wins in a landslide. And maybe there's not, no insurrection. Maybe Republicans kick Trump to the wilderness. And it's it's that that I feel like no amount of evidence seems to be capable of making Democrats embrace or at least experiment with a, a more aggressive ethic. And so I guess as a closing thought, what, if anything, do you think might make the party establishment just give it a shot? Just try that way of doing things instead of the way they normally do things. And just so I understand you, you're saying raise the temperature on Donald Trump and make sure that he that, that we're dragging his negatives higher. Is that is that what you're saying? I mean, that, I, th- that's my theory of, of why doing that is not just the right thing to do morally and just as part of your oath of office, your sort of obligation as an office holder. But yes, like politically, I think that uh, uh, politicians who are beset by scandal lose popularity and have a harder time winning elections. And if they lead the party, like if it's George W. Bush uh, mired in scandal, then, you know, the his party suffers a wipeout in in the midterm or the next election. Yeah, but, you know, the, in this question, I do think that get grappling with building populism of the left is important as building populism of the, of, of the right. Like, they, they, what, populism become a bad word because Trump is essentially, you know, co-opted it and, like, many right-wing people all over the world have co-opted it to mean that, like, oh, you know, you build it around some crazy ideology and anger and vitriol. I think that the way to think about 
doing is do populism for the good. And 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 where, what if I were to urge the Democratic Party is like connect with people on the ground and feel what is visceral and emotional for them. Uh, and, and gets them out of their seats. And I don't know, you know, Donald Trump to some degree is a brand that, that people have attached themselves to, you know, and, and feel emotional resonance with. If I asked, if I went into any room in, in, um, in the country and I said, you know, what do you think of the Democratic brand and what is it that most excites you about it? I don't know what I'd get. I mean, what would you get, Brian? I think that that to me is the question to hone in on, right? They, they What, what Democrat, Republicans are writing is saying, okay, well, there's a lot of emotional resonance around this guy. As soon as he starts to like really tank, I think some of the people are just going to continue to throw him overboard, say Ron DeSantis, whatever. That's probably the path for us in the future. But as long as he shows, you know, emotional resonance and has like, you know, some crazy faction that's continued to be around him, then he, his 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 power is maintained at least within that party. To my mind, like, where, where's our counter? Like, where's our building of like populist populism, a healthy populism of the left uh, that is emotionally resonant around positive ideals? Um, and I think that that's where I that's where I want to focus on. That's where I want to build that rather than trying to just continually think about how you chip away at him which is fine but you're you're not doing the work of building your own well right i mean i think that the the two things go hand in hand right like give me uh five minutes to interview somebody who resembles the median voter and i i imagine you get some assessment of the parties where like donald trump is has his flaws but he is always fighting right and Democrats are... Um, There's a perception of a, a quote-unquote strong leader around Donald Trump. Like, yeah. You know, De- Democrats have weak... Democrats, on on the other hand, weak leaders, they're weak. Sort, of, sort of like uh, you got a tail wagging the dog situation where they're in, in, in hock to these uh, progressive, woke, whatever you want to call exactly. it. Uh, you know, and, you know, even though they're, they seem less crazy and mean overall... You know, I don't, I don't see where I fit into their future or the future that that they envision. Okay, so if 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 Democrats spent less time talking about things that never reached that guy because they're so boring, like the Chips Act, right? <laughs> um, and they're talking about how Donald Trump uh, appointed the right wing justices, stole one or two of the seats, they overturned Roe v. Wade, and now ten year olds are being forced to give birth. Uh, there's no exceptions for rape or incest. That's that's his fault, and we're going to fix it. I mean, there you have like a positive substantive vision and a like this guy is actually bad news message. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, but what you're saying is you're connecting pretty deeply with regular people and their lived conditions and and trying to address them and talk about them in ways that resonate. I think you're absolutely right. Those those things like talking about Texas and what's going on in Texas with actually you know, when an abortion ban goes into effect and, and what it, what impact it has on real life, what impact it has on family, what impact it has on a community. Now as a Democratic Party, you're getting closer and closer to I think, you know, a healthy populism. You are more connected. You aren't trying to just you know pull it and figure out what language and words might work on TV ad. You're figuring out what is emotional resonant around your values. So okay, uh, what would you know? Whether you're a listener or somebody who works close to politics and thus has some access to these leaders, what what do what pressure do they need to feel, and how can it be brought to bear to? Make the leaders more like what you just said. <laughs> well, I mean, but to some sense, like I, I think if we had a healthy populism that was built, being built at the ground, that not leaders would follow it. I mean, we have that kind of a 
you know, a movement in the Democratic Party. A lot of things are, are decided from the top down because we're, we have that kind of architecture. We have, we're like a top down type of party. Uh, decisions are made in the closed rooms and this is the compromise and here we go. Here's the vote and everyone feel good about it. What I'm suggesting is that that kind of enthusiasm and the resonance, whether it's a labor movement around Starbucks or Amazon, whether it's uh, women coming together or, or people coming together around abortion bans, uh, you know, you can think about all kinds of measures at the local level that are fighting for voting rights or, you know, all manner of quit fighting corporate greed and at the local community level, fighting like pollution, whatever, it, that to my mind, coming together and animating and fighting it and finding local community leaders who want to take those up, that it has to become political in some sense that those mm-hmm. are, those fights become political because then that's how that's how the Democratic Party starts to move and charge and learn basically that oh yeah. you got to be deeply connected to regular people's work conditions and resonant emotionally resonant with them because otherwise I think we're we're trapped in a kind of politics that suggests that just do what is safe uh, and not too emotionally fraught. Here's how here's how to distill my fear because uh, it it just occurred to me. <laughs> I agree with you that like if that the sort of triumvirate of issues that have helped Democrats swing a bit, if, you know that the, the, they'll keep clinging to those things, and the election will probably not go as badly as we were worried it would go three, four, five months ago. Uh, maybe they'll even hold on to the House and Senate. That would be great. What I fear about what happens after is is. Uh, Here's a microcosm of it. The Democratic leadership really wanted Connor Lamb to be the Senate nominee in Pennsylvania. And they think Connor Lamb is what they've thought since he won back in 2017 or 2018, his first special election, that this guy who never, never talks about Trump, only talks about health care, is like the, the, the secret, like the magic formula for beating Republicans. And then runs in a primary against John Fetterman, who they did not want to be the nominee. And Fetterman crushes him. And now Fetterman's crushing Dr. Oz, um, which is not like that hard of a task, but he's doing it and he's doing it joyfully and like with, with flair. And people just like Fetterman because he's a, he's, you know, like a, he seems real in some sense, not because necessarily his website has these policies listed on it. Okay. So he wins, and it's a cause for celebration across the Democratic Party. But the, the party, <laughs> their lesson that they take from it isn't we were wrong to want somebody like Connor Lamb. It's we need to find somebody who's like Connor Lamb, except six foot five inches tall and two hundred and eighty pounds, and uh, that's the magic formula. Do you know what I mean? Like that's how the brain works. Yeah, but I don't. I have a different description of Connor Lamb. It's that somebody who kind of like is safe with wealthy and powerful people. Like that. That's that's the difference between if you brought Connor Lamb into a room and John Fetterman into a room, and you had high dollar donors, you had powerful corporate elites. Which one of them would be well better received? <laughs> right, Connor right. Lamb would be better received because he's not going to invite a friction or fight, and he's going to find a way that peacemaker with you guys and Fetterman's going to have like serious disagreement people know that about him and he's going to say those things 
And so I think that, that to my mind, that's what the, like Henry Cuellar in, in South Texas. Why do you want to crush Jessica Cisneros? Be like way more enthusiastic, build more enthusiasm, be more aligned with your values. Why do you feel like you had to go in that direction? Because Henry Cuellar is going to be fun, better fundraiser. He's going to be better with, you know, uh, uh, getting money for the party. I think that's what we're trying to challenge is that in some sense, the inverse of what I was talking about, when you're built from people and, and you, you're kind of deep grassroots or, you know, organizing and real emotional resonance of lived experiences of people, the inverse of that as well is a room of like 50 people who have wealth wealth, and they're trying to decide who the candidates are and they're putting their fingers on the scale. You saw this play in Missouri, right? Here's a wealthy, you know, uh, Valentine who's going to be our candidate in Missouri, a Democrat, almost certainly going to lose. And 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 we had a, a populace of Lucas Coons, a Marine, and, you know, somebody who was going to fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, wanted to be a populist crusader against corporations. Stop on, right? Like, just stop on them. And you're like, those are the things that I'm like, man, what a frustration. Why not just like, it, 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 there's just a preference, a built-in preference for those with inherent kind of wealth, power, massing of like comfort in that scale to just to win. And, and that that's what we're trying to change is like, okay, just don't pull your fingers on the scales. Don't let wealth govern that judgment. Don't let the super PAC come in and really inordinately influence one side over the other. If you just let this generally organically play out, it will be healthy for the party. But what you see actually is a, is a really aggressive effort to say, no, the, the money is coming down on one side here, guys. And that we're, we're just stopping you guys, you progressive out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think when Fetterman wins, it's, you know, knock on wood, uh, and Mandela, there should, yes. <laughs> there should be a there should be a um, like a echo chamber effect of saying he won because he's a cool guy, and then the, so the party should endeavor to nominate yes. cool dudes, cool dudettes um, for for every race that they can. People who are like at home in their states and comfortable in their own skin and uh, true to, to true to a sense of themselves have a real core, and not we need to put Connor Lamb in a hoodie and give him some tattoos, you know? <laughs> but that, if you're, if you're a moneyed interest though, it, that's what you're going to suggest. You're like, okay, well, how do we learn from this to get our people elected? My, yeah. my, and you can just have to own that. That is, that is going to be an ever present fight, Brian. Like that's just going to exist. The people well, wealth and power are just going to try to evolve the tactics to say, we'll put our finger on the scale and make sure that like our person does better next time around. But I'm, you know, I think as a Democratic Party, all of us come together and say, hey, let's get this stuff out. Let's just have yeah. like actual people decide. And, and, and I say honestly, just like if it falls in a certain way, that's fine. But let the democracy of it all play out, such that you know millions of dollars of TV ads or whatever are not the thing that kind of tilt the scales and fight for one candidate over another, or get preference even candidate selection, which you know is another problem. But just like, can, can we allow people to run? Who won't feel like they, you know, already got the deck stacked against them because you know another candidate is self-funded, wealthy, and all that. Uh, eventually, the Democrats will have new leaders from a new generation. Maybe, hopefully, even they will be of a different cast of mind than the people who've run the party for the last couple decades. And then it's maybe we'll have like a coming, right. It's kind of coming. You can see that. I mean, in some sense, the progress, like in this next Congress, there'll be some new progressives in there, which will be great. Like people like Summer Lee from Pittsburgh and Greg Kassar in Texas, uh, Delia Ramirez and Jonathan Jackson in Illinois. You know, you're going to have people who are interesting and different and have, you know, 
you know, different backgrounds, which is great. I think that's healthy. That's healthy for the Democratic Party. We need more people like that who just didn't come in because so-and-so appointed so-and-so or like had a lot of wealth or knew was a name, high name ID because they are coming from such and such family. You're like, right, right. <laughs> There's always a place for that in politics. But like, we're at a place where we kind of need to get more innovation uh, around mm-hmm. the kind of types of candidates, uh, the the appeals that they have, the backgrounds that they have, because otherwise the coalition gets stayed, right? It starts to retrench and you don't want that to happen. Yeah, the next generation leadership, the question, what I mean is the Democrats of 2025, say, could be led by Pramila Jayapal and Brian Schatz or by Hakeem Jeffries and Mark Warner. And that's, it's a question of change versus continuity. And I think... Ultimately, the question of do you take the right lesson from the Fetterman story or the wrong lesson is a question of who's in charge. And we may we may have to wait until there's a, some turnover before the party just in general recognizes talent and cottons to it rather than trying to, you know, uh, create a, a robot of the proper talking points. Well, I, I'm with you on the, having a stronger uh, and more powerful Democratic Party. So let's let's hope we get there. All right. Faz Shakir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Good conversation. All right. I feel like I should acknowledge something now that we've reached the end. This show is supposed to be about finding the positive and the dreadful. And this week, we kind of inverted the formula. So let me just say, I feel much, much better about where things stand for Democrats in the country today than I did, say, in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs ruling or after Joe Manchin killed the Build Back Better Act. What I want to surface here is the recurring dread that the old guard that runs the Democratic Party just doesn't know how to engage in the trench warfare politics that Republicans have foisted upon all of us. And so when the going gets tough again in the future, as it definitely will, Democrats will keep reaching for that policy lever, yank harder and harder on it in the hope that voters will reward them in bank shot fashion for quote-unquote delivering, and they'll sidestep the ethical and cultural vulnerabilities that should make Republicans just easier to beat head-to-head. The light at the end of this pod is that A, what we're witnessing in this hopefully enduring Democratic bounce back proves that the party can be bullied into waging a real fight. It just requires people on the outside to make a huge stink about it. And B, the Democrats that currently rule the roost are on their way out. And a new generation of leadership can perhaps be pressured into rewiring the party to fight in the world as it is. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez, and our associate producer is Olivia Martinez. Veronica Simonetti mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasily Fotopoulos. <laughs>